So what we're going to start with is he wants to point out something which is very critical to know. Last week, we spent time talking about who enacted that we should be saying the Shemona Esrei, the fact that we say it three times a day, right? We talked about the fact that we have a Torah obligation to pray every day, right? That's what we've spoken about in the past. The way the rabbis said that we should accomplish that is through the Shemona Esrei, right? The 18 prayer blessing that later on turned into 19. Um, so the, you know, we talked about the fact that according to some of the Tanaim, right? They, the, uh, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob prayed each of them instituted one prayer. So Abraham instituted morning, Isaac instituted afternoon, and Jacob instituted evening prayers. We then talked about the fact that on the other hand, seemingly, it's all about the carbonos. It's all about the offerings, right? And then we put the two together to describe how the later sages enacted a very specific type of prayer in that those specific time periods, whereas the first three, the patriarchs, they hadn't necessarily given us a specific time period. They just instituted praying in general at those, at those basic time periods. And then the later sages said it should be tied to when the carbonos were offered. That was a very, very um, prescribed time period. Okay. And that's what they had, they had actually brought to the table as well. Okay. That's what we discussed last week, primarily. Now, there is another opinion about who really started prayer. Right. So we oh sorry, one last point. We also spoke last week about the Anchik Nesagadola, the men of the great assembly who really put together the words of the 18 prayer blessing. Although the conceptually there was already a need to pray, and these concepts were all already included in what we wanted to be discussing, but the specific phrasing of those 18 concepts that was only written down by the Anchik Nesagadola, by the men of the great assembly during the time period when prophecy was going away and we no longer had the capacity to come up with a very fluent and beautiful and personally uh, meaningful prayer on a daily basis, especially not three times a day, since we had lost that capacity as individuals. So therefore they said, let us come up with a universally meaningful type of prayer, okay? Expressing these 18 different concepts. But the Medrash says, Actually, there's someone else who's heavily involved in defining what the meaning, or at least what the most important part of prayer is. And what the measures quotes is, it says that Moshe Rabbeinu is the one who actually started or established what tefillah is all about. He established what we call the tiva ha-tefillah. Tiva means coin, okay? So what does it mean that Moshe establishes the coin? If you look at a coin, the essence of a coin is, tells you, a date. It tells you a value, and that's about it, right? Maybe it has the face of the king on it. But that's really all you need to know about this coin, right? You don't then have to go weigh it. You don't then have to go look at it. Is it really, is it really gold? Is it really silver? Is it really copper? Once it already has those three pieces of information on it, you're good to go. That testifies about it. So when we say Moshe Rabbeinu established Tefillah, what we mean is that Moshe Rabbeinu actually was the one who gave us the three I don't call the most important, but the three concepts that are embodied in the first blessing of the Shemona Esrei. Okay, so if you open up your Siddur to page 99, 98 in the Hebrew, what we find is when we begin the Shemona Esrei, we say, Baruch Atah Hashem, blessed are you Hashem, Elokeinu, our God, Veloke Avotenu, and God of our forefathers. Eloke Avraham, Eloke Yitzchak, Eloke Yaakov. We are defining God as being the God of 
us, the God of our fathers, and in specific, the God of the three patriarchs. Now then the next three words that we use, next four words, I should say, Hakel, Hagadol, Hagibar, Vahanora. Okay. So what does that mean? Hakel means the great one, right? The Hagadol means big or um, the, I guess, large or something, uh, big, great. Hagibar means the mighty one. Gibor is a mighty one, right? We call Shimshon Hagibar, Samson, the mighty one. Vahanora and the awesome God, okay? Now, that phrase right there of Gado Gibar Nora. Let's look at our first source. Okay, first source is Devarim 10.17, right? Deuteronomy 10.17. And what we read is like this. Ki Hashem Elokeichem. Moshe Rabbeinu was speaking to the Jewish people right before he dies. Ki Hashem Elokeichem. Hu Elokeicha Elokim. Right? Hashem, your God, is the, the, uh, the master of, of, of gods, right? So to speak. The supreme God, really. So this right here is Sepharia is doesn't want to write down the actual name of Hashem. So they wrote it like this instead. But it really says, Va'ado the name of Hashem, Adonai, Ha'adonim, right? And, and the Lord of all lords, so to speak. It's, it doesn't mean that he actually is the Lord over other lords, but it means he is the Lord that is greater than all other potential lords. Hakel, Hagadal, Hagibar, Vahanora. So Moshe uses these four phrases to describe God. The supreme, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. So Moshe was the one who actually first used that phrase that we then find in Arashwana Esrei of Hakel HaGadah HaGibar Vahanora. So what the, what the Medrash tells us is, that's because Moshe was actually the first one to put together this phrase. And that phrase is critical to our understanding of what the Shmona Esrei is. In fact, in Halacha, if someone does not have the proper level of concentration during davening, as long as they have the proper level of concentration during the first blessing of Shmona Esrei, they don't have to go back. If they don't even have the proper level of concentration in the first blessing of Shemona Esrei, then they have to start again. Okay? But as long as they have the proper level in the first blessing, it's already sufficient. Because the concepts that are expressed in the first blessing really encapsulate everything that we're going to discuss. Now, when I say sufficient, obviously I mean not ideal, but sufficient after the fact. Ideally, of course, we have the proper level of concentration throughout our prayer service, but sometimes it doesn't happen, unfortunately. Okay, so let's now discuss, we'll spend a little bit of time discussing what are these concepts that we speak of, right? What are these concepts that Moshe Rabbeinu is trying to express over here, right? When he says that this is the Kel, the Gadol, the Gibar, the Hanora. What are these concepts? Okay, so let's look at source number two. I just printed out the source sheet. Okay. So source number two is Tehillim and in Psalms 106.21, right? Kuf Vav Chaf Aleph. And it says, kel moshiam We are describing God and we're describing the Jewish people that they forgot God who saved them, right? What did he do? He did gedolos, great deeds, right? Ose did gedolos, great bimitzrayim, great deeds in Mitzrayim. What type of great deeds are we referring to? When we speak about God, we can speak about different aspects of God. Of course, it's all one God. We're not Zoroastrians who believe that there's two different types of gods. One God is nice, one God isn't. 
the God of, of peace, the God of punishment, right? That's not what we mean. What we mean is in terms of how does God manifest his presence in this world? And we talk about two different aspects of how God interacts with this world and causes things to happen in this world. We talk about the Midas Hadin, the Midas Harachamim, or Midas HaChesed. How do we translate that? As when God is acting as a judge, right? And when God is acting as a compassionate one. There are two different elements. There's mercy and justice. They are both essential. The Medrash tells us that God can only create the world when he is operating from a state of mercy, because otherwise the world would not continue to exist. That being said, there are times when God operates in his guise as judge and is acting and operating justice. When we talk about God in Egypt, who makes the gedolos in Egypt, the great deeds in Egypt, which type of great deeds are we speaking about? Right? Because in Egypt, we can talk about different things. We can talk about the fact that he saves the Jewish people. We can talk about the fact that he's pinpoint precision, right? Unlike the Russians, or who knows, maybe this is exactly what they intend to do, but pinpoint precision in terms of only hitting the Egyptians and saving all the Jewish people. So which aspect of God do we speak of when we say Godel? Great. So look at source number three. In a different place in Tehillim, we use a different a phrase for God. Chanun v'rachum Hashem. Chanun v'rachum means gracious and merciful. Hashem, God. Erech apayim. He, he, erech means to be lengthened or prolonged. Apayim, his anger does not come right away. He slows his anger. Doesn't allow it to, to exist yet. Ugedol chesed. And great in kindness. So Rav Schwab says, and Rav Schwab is actually quoting an earlier commentary on the Sidur. He says, Godol actually refers to chesed, when God exhibits himself as the kindness God, so to speak. God exhibits himself in his guise as the rachaman, as the merciful, compassionate one. Okay? So when Moshe Rabbeinu is saying, hakel hagadol, the supreme hagadol, the great, he is referring to midas harachaman. He is referring to God in his guise as the one who operates with mercy and compassion. Next one, what is the Gibor, the mighty one? So let's look again in Tehillim, Kuf Vav, in, uh, in verse, in Pasuk, Ches and Tes, right? In verse eight and nine. Yet he saved them as befits his name to make known his might. Just a little bit of context. What this Psalm begins with is a recapitulation of what happened to the Jewish people when they refused to believe in God's might and were cowering at the sea and were not believing that God would save them when they felt cornered by the Egyptian people. And yet he saved them, as befits his name, to make known his might. Givurato is the same word as Gibor. What is the might that is being exhibited here? The might that is being exhibited here is Midas Hadin, is the attribute of judgment. What is God doing at the Sea of Reeds? He is taking his attribute of judgment and destroying the Egyptian people. So if Gadol is a reference to Chesed, to kindness, then Gibor is a reference to Din. Okay, what is Nora a reference to? So Nora, awesomeness, is a reference to a very interesting idea that is very, very pertinent to what we are about to start this week's Torah portion, the, the third book of the Torah, Leviticus, which is all about 
the operations, the daily operations and processes in the Mishka, in the, in the sanctuary, the tabernacle. So we say like this, Nora, right? This word Nora, right? Elohim mimikta shacha. Hashem is awesome in far from your Mishkan. Kel Yisrael, who? He is the supreme God of Israel. It is the God of Israel who gives the eyes, the strength, and the, the might, power to his to this nation. Blessed are you, Hashem. So what, where do we express Hashem's awesomeness, right? We talk about the word awesome today, right? We have a different connotation to it, right? It's used in very different ways, um, it, you know, by the young guns today, right? But what does awesome mean? Awesome means something that you are just blinded by. It is something that is just so overwhelming to all of your senses. It is a reference to the fact Hashem's awesomeness, from your holy places. What is Hashem's holy place? Is Hashem anywhere not in this world? Is there any place in this world where Hashem isn't? Right? So when we define Hashem as a holy place of Hashem, obviously what we mean to say is the Mishkan, <laughs> the, the sanctuary, the tabernacle, as well as the temples. Why? Because those are the places in which Hashem manifests His presence in a very open way. When you think about the end of last week's Torah portion, what did we read? We read that Hashem shows up in a cloud of glory on top of, on top of the tent. And if Hashem's cloud of glory is there, Moshe cannot go in because Hashem is there. And it's only when the cloud of glory lifts itself up that Moshe can go in. So the cloud of glory itself is a manifestation of Hashem's presence in this world. An incredible idea. I cannot even picture, literally cannot even picture in my mind anything of that sort. To literally be standing in a place in this world. Look at a tent in this world, a cloud above it and say, that cloud is God. Or at least... I shouldn't say that. cloud is not God. That's not true. The cloud is showing us that God's presence is here. Incredible. Incredible idea. In addition, we also will find in, in Leviticus, there's another story happening concurrently at the same time that they're putting up the Mishkan and the cloud is coming, which is that they inaugurate the Mishkan for a seven-day period where Moshe and Aaron are doing the service in the temple each day. And Hashem has not yet shown up. The fire of glory has not yet shown up. In other words, the offerings on the altar are not being burned by Hashem's fire, a fire that comes directly from heaven. It's only on day eight, when Aaron does it exclusively, that the fire shows up from heaven. And then Hashem and Hashem, uh, and Hashem is, is really showing that he's happy with what they have done. That is when we say that Hashem is awesome. Okay? So Moshe said these three things to the Jewish people before he dies at the end of Deuteronomy, before in the last, the 40th, year of their travels through the desert. He says, Hashem is supreme. Hashem is awesome. Hashem is great. And Hashem is mighty. Okay. And it's expressing the fact that Hashem sometimes acts as a judge, sometimes acts as a merciful, uh, you know, um, attorney almost, right? Defense attorney, right? Really pardoning, I guess we should say, not the defense attorney, probably more the position of, of a king pardoning, right? And then, and then the final one is the fact that we can see Hashem's or feel Hashem's presence in this world at times. Okay. So that's what Moshe Rabbeinu started. These are critical to our understanding of what we're about to do in Shemona Esrei. And that's why the first paragraph, the first blessing of Shemona Esrei is so important and so essential to have the proper level of kavana. And without the proper level of kavana, which means concentration, right? Or intention, right? Then we will not fulfill the mitzvah. These three ideas are the, the real, the, the important part. Okay.
Now, here's where it gets pretty interesting. Let's look right now at source number uh, six. Okay, source number six is a Talmudic passage. And source number six really gives us some great insight into how we are supposed to relate to this today. We don't have a temple anymore, right? We haven't had a temple for almost 2,000 years at this point. So, and even before that temple was destroyed, we didn't have clouds of glory over that temple. That temple did not have an open manifestation of Hashem's presence in it. And in terms of saying the great and mighty God, as we're seeing play out right now in Ukraine, just because somebody's doing something wrong doesn't mean that they're going to get punished in this world. So we don't get to see the God of judgment, so to speak, the way that Moshe got to see the God of judgment, you know, where the Egyptians have been punishing them for so long and God shows up and destroys them, right? Kind of like, uh, you know, like in a movie where a kid's getting bullied for a long time and then finally you get to see the, the kid who was bullied finally stands up for himself and, you know, punches the other guy in the face. And you're like, yes, finally you got him back, right? So we don't get to see that in this world anymore. Right? We don't get to see Hashem doing that. We see people act with impunity, evil actors with impunity, and no one is stopping it. It's a little bit more difficult. In terms of Hashem's great mercy, we don't even necessarily get to see that either anymore. Mara tells us something really important to know. The Talmudic passage over here is going through why are the 120 member court the high court that came back to Israel and they instituted a 120 member supermajority, right? Not just 70, but 120. Why are they called the men of the great assembly? And Rev Matana said a different answer than some of the answers that came before him, but we're going to focus on Rev Matana today. They reinserted the following appellations of God into their prayers. The great, the mighty, and the awesome God. What is he quoting? A verse in Nehemiah, right? Nehemiah. Nehemiah and Ezra are the two leaders of the Jewish people when they come back to Israel and they're rebuilding the second temple. Nehemiah is the one who reinserts the great, the mighty, and the awesome. He puts it back in. The Gemara comments, this interpretation that Rav Matana said leans to the exposition of Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi. As Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi said, why are the sages of those generations called the members of the great assembly? It is because they return the crown of the Holy One, blessed be he, to its former glory. What does this mean? How so? Moshe came and said in his prayer, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. We just read, right? Yermio, the prophet, came and said, Gentiles, the minions of Nebuchadnezzar, are carousing in his sanctuary. Where is his awesomeness? Therefore, he did not say awesome in his prayer. So when Yermio was davening to Hashem, he said, Hakel, Hagadol, right? The Hagibar. But he did not say Hanora. He felt it's not appropriate. How can I say the Nora right now? The idea of the Nora is that there is a holy place in this world where God places his presence. In this very world, God can place his presence. That's a crazy idea. Well, it doesn't seem to be happening anymore. The Gentiles are dancing in his sanctuary. He doesn't seem to be here. He seems to have deserted us. I can't say the word awesome. It's not appropriate. And indeed, as we find, they quote the verse in, in Yermio, right? This idea doesn't say no. Daniel came and said, Gentiles are enslaving his children. Where is his might, his gibor, his din, his attribute of justice? What should be happening is people are hurting, oppressing, persecuting the Jewish people, creating 
terrible, terrible conditions for them. Where is the great and mighty God who says, I am the God of justice and I will immediately act as the, with retribution against the enemies of my people. Therefore, he did not say mighty in his prayer. All he says is hakel, hagadol, v'hanora. Okay? So this is what's taking place. So for a thousand years, uh, almost a thousand years, the Jewish people, whenever they were davening, they were saying hakel, hagadol, hagibar, v'hanora. Yermio comes around towards the end of the destruction of the first Besamekdash, first temple, and says, I can no longer say Nora because Hashem does not seem to be here in the Besamekdash anymore. Daniel comes and says, I can't say might, I can't say Gibor, because they're getting abused. The members of the great assembly came and said, on the contrary, this is the might of his might. This is the fullest expression of it, that he conquers his inclination and that he exercises patience towards the Lord. A fascinating idea. You want to talk about Gibor? You want to talk about who's truly the strong one? There's a very big difference between a king in this world, between a dictator and authoritarian in this world and God. I'll tell you the difference. The difference is that that king, he's here for a finite amount of time. If he does not carry out retribution on his enemies, he has no further recourse to retribution in the future. God lives forever. And God has a world of the souls. And if he doesn't punish people in this world, trust me, there is a punishment coming in the next world. That is the greatest might of all. Right? The person who, who doesn't have so much might, he needs to establish his, his uh, bona fides, right? And immediately say, you're messing with me? Let me show you what's going to happen to you, right? But the person, not the person, but God, who has all the might in the world, doesn't even need to express it. Because he can wait. God's anger is cleared by the Gentile nations, enslavement of his people. Yet he expresses tremendous might by suppressing his anger, holding back, punishing them immediately. Therefore, it's still appropriate to refer to God as mighty. And these acts also express his awesomeness. First, what we thought is that the awesomeness of God is the very fact that he manifests himself in this world. His presence is close to us, palpable at the temple. But now the Gemara says the men of the great assembly were able to come up with a different idea. Were it not for the awesomeness of the Holy One, blessed be he, how could one people, i.e. the Jewish people, who are alone and hated by the Gentile nations, survive among the nations? Okay? So actually, you know it's the greatest manifestation of Hashem in this world? You thought it was when you went to the Beis HaMikdash in those holy, holy times, and everybody purified themselves first, and we were wearing special clothing, and the entire Jewish people are gathered together, and there's a cloud of glory. Nope. It's not the greatest manifestation of Hashem. You know what the greatest manifestation of Hashem is? The fact that we survived the exile. Very reminiscent of the famous statement by Rabbi Yaakov Emden. Rabbi Yaakov Emden was a great, great rabbi living in the 1700s in Amsterdam and then Altoona. And he was asked, he, he was asked, I'm sorry, he wrote in his, one of his books, the greatest miracle that Hashem has ever done is not the splitting of the sea. It's not Har Sinai. It's the fact that the Jewish people still survive amongst all the other nations. I think it's, it's an important thing for us to remember. And I'll tell you why. Because sometimes we get so caught up with fighting against, you know, the anti-Semites and thinking that it's up to us to save the Jewish people. And if we don't, if we don't do X, Y, and Z, and we don't get this act passed, and we don't, um, you know, condemn this, then who knows what will happen. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do that, but I'm saying let's not forget something. We have a Hashem, and the Hashem is going to take care of us no matter what.
Now, the Gemara asks the obvious question, and the rabbis, i.e. Jeremiah and Daniel, these two prophets, how could they do this and uproot an ordinance instituted by Moshe, the greatest teacher who instituted the mention of these attributes in prayer? Rabbi Elazar said they did so because they knew the Holy One, blessed be he, he is truthful and hates a lie. Consequently, they did not speak falsely about him. So Yirmiyo and Daniel are both prophets, but they're not able to perceive the attribute of might and awesomeness, given the circumstances that were happening with Jewish people at that time. Therefore, we can't say those words. We cannot say those words if we don't feel them. Now, once again, how are we supposed to say these words if we don't feel them, right? So the answer is the Anshik Nessus Hagadola, the men of the Great Assembly, they came along and they had a completely different perspective. Now, why do they have a completely different perspective? Were they holier than Jeremiah? Were they holier than Daniel? Why are they able to recognize that the greatest manifestation of God is actually in the exile? Why are they able to recognize that the greatest strength ex exhibition of the strength of God is that he does not need to punish in this world. He can punish forever. Why do they able to realize that and not Jeremiah and Daniel? So I think there actually is something unique about coming to it from a state of exile and not coming to it from a state of Hot of higher levels or holiness where they had actually experienced the open presence of God previously. And for them, the come down was so great that they couldn't possibly bridge that gap. But for those of us who were born and those who are living in exile our whole lives, right, but we're able to recognize the greatness of God, that's something which is even more special. Right? And we'll, we'll get back to that a little bit later as well. I want to bring up that point again a little bit later, but I also want to go a little bit further, okay? So now, now we see, we keep on calling it the Shemona Esrei. Shemona Esrei is Hebrew for 18. Now, technically, our Shemona Esrei today has 19 blessings. The 19th blessing was put in at a later point because of the heretics. And the 19th blessing was that the heretics should seize from Israel. And you actually don't say that the heretics should die. We say that they should seize their heresy and they should come back to the true faith, okay? But, Technically, the original institution was always 18 blessings. And many different sources in, in the sages try to kind of link up where are these, why did the sages feel this necessity? The Anshik the men of the great assembly, what was the necessity to sort of have 18? Where's this number 18? Where does it come from, right? So 18 is chai, right? But it happens not to be something that the sages are pointing out when they talk about why it's 18. But there's something else that's very significant. And they come up with many different places in the Torah where you can find 18 specifically. For example, Rabbi Shmuel, the son of Nachmani, stated, this number corresponds to the 18 instances in which the names of the patriarchs are mentioned simultaneously in the Torah. Okay. In other words, there are 18 places in the Torah where we put together Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. Okay, beautiful. Okay. But here's something very critical. Rabbi Shimon held, right? So we're in source number seven, the four lines from the bottom. Rabbi Shimon held the 18 benedictions correspond to the 18 vertebrae in a man's spinal column. When a man prays and genuflects, he is required to bow down until all the vertebrae in his spinal column are loosened. As it is said, all my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like unto you? Okay. So therefore, what he's saying is, this. ultimately, all of these numbers are very significant. 18, we find many different places. But what it really boils down to is all of these 18s, it's associated with 18 vertebrae. What do the 18 vertebrae have to do with anything? Why is this something? Because when you are praying the Shemona Esrei, you have to bend your knees and bow. 
once, twice, three, four times altogether, you bend your knees and bow. And then once you bend, you bend down, you bow down without even bending your knees. And when you do so, the Talmud says you should bow down until you actually feel your vertebrae getting loosened up a little bit. So you should bend your back. You know, people who do yoga all the time might not have any, any feeling of their back, uh, back getting loosened and the vertebrae getting loosened. But for those of us who don't necessarily do that, so when we bow down, you feel like your vertebrae are actually getting loosened. Okay. Why is this so important that your vertebrae need to feel like they are becoming loosened? So Shirid pointed out at the beginning that last week we were talking about the smicha of Geula Tetvila, the importance of talking about the fact that God redeems us immediately preceding the fact that we are now going to daven. And Rav Schwab explained, I explained last week from Rav Schwab, right? That what's the concept? The concept is that Geula is about Hashem acting as our closest relative. And our way of reciprocating is by us being ready to sacrifice ourselves, by ready to commit our lives to the service of Hashem. Because tefillah is about me saying I am committing to a relationship and committing to keeping the Torah and to keeping the mitzvahs. So it is very similar. Tefillah, prayer, comes in place of the karbanos, of the sacrifices. When we brought a karban, it was all about creating a relationship between us and God, right? It was all about saying, I am now bringing this animal as a sacrifice, but in place of the animal, I look at it as if I myself was ready to bring myself as a sacrifice on, on the altar, right? Of course, it's not what we do, but that's how I perceive it, that this is a commitment that I'm ready to do that as well. The same way I'm ready to give up my very expensive, very fat animal, I'm also ready to do the same thing with myself. And that's what tefillah is all about. So when I loosen all of my vertebrae and I'm bending over, what I'm saying is my entire physical structure is completely committed right, to doing the will of Hashem. We're bending everything. We're bending our entire physical bodies to do the will of Hashem. And finally, these final two halachas that we have to do during the Shemona Esrei, they also embody this idea. Talmud tells us in Source 8, and Rabbi Yossi, son of Rabbi Hanina, said in the name of Rabbi Eliezer ben Yaakov, when praying, one should align his feet next to each other as a single foot in order to model oneself after the angels with regard to whom it is stated, and their feet were a single foot. Okay. Angels have one foot, humans have two feet. What is this all about, right? So certainly from a anatomical perspective, it would be very difficult to, to move quickly with only one foot, right? You know, they would have to invent prosthetics, right? So... But what, what, what is the deeper idea? Because it's not just about physical ideas. Angels are not really physical either, right? So what do, we, what do we mean when we say that they have one foot? What do we mean that we're trying to emulate the angels? What are we trying to express? When you have two feet, you can choose which direction you go very easily, so to speak, right? In a, in a symbolic sense, okay? So you can choose. Do you go to the right, which is the right place? Do you go to the left, which is the wrong place? Okay? Angels don't have that ability. Angels don't have free will. Angels do the will of God always. So they have one foot. And that one foot is really, it doesn't mean literally one foot, not literally one foot, I don't know. But what it means is that they only do the will of God. They have no free will. When we are praying, we put our feet next to each other. We want to emulate the angels. We want to say, in some ways, we do your will without any deviation at all. That's what we're trying to express. When we bend down and bow, we're acknowledging that everything is from Hashem. You take these two different halachas, right? And you say, but before with the halacha is that before you say Hashem's name, right? You bow down and say, bend the knees at Baruch, when you say blessed, bow at Atta, but you straighten up before you say Hashem. Because you're saying, everything that I have comes from you, Hashem. Now, 
what's important to recognize, right? All that being said, and we're going to now close the loop back to the question of how we are supposed to really emulate and why it's easier sometimes to think of Hashem as being more powerful and more great and more mighty when it's exile time period and not when he's openly manifested in the temple. Like this. Hashem wants us to come forward and say, I am ready to sacrifice myself for you. But let's go back for a minute. Who was the first person or the only person that Hashem ever asks to sacrifice literally their life? Yitzchak, of course, right? Isaac, right? The binding of Isaac. But what ends up happening? What does Hashem then tell Abraham? No, no, no. Don't actually bring him as a sacrifice. Be ready to bring him as a sacrifice, but don't bring him as a sacrifice. I want him in this world. I don't want you killing yourself to show how much you care about me. I want you in this physical world, making the world a better place. When you're in that exile and there's less of a feeling of Hashem, and there actually is less of Hashem's manifestation, and Hashem is not fixing the world for us, it's up to us to fix the world. When we're in that state, we actually on some level can appreciate even more what Hashem really is. So that's something that we have to try to tap into. We have to try to recognize that that's what we're really here to do. And I just want to finish with one last point from a teacher of mine, my, my Rebbe, Rebbe Kalman Epstein. After 9-11, so the, the, the kidnappers, the not kidnappers, but the hijackers, right? So they take down that plane. And, you know, there were some people out there like, wow, they really were ready to put their money where their mouth is, right? They were ready to kill themselves, right? And in Judaism, although we always say the chai behem, you shall live by the mitzvot and not die by the mitzvot, there are the three cardinal sins, which after all, one is obligated to give up their life for, right? So there are those three cardinal sins. And those three cardinal sins, if somebody says, listen, I'm not going to worship idols, no matter what you do, we, we, we do celebrate them, right? So why is it that we celebrate those people? Maybe we should, on some twisted level, have some sort of appreciation for the for the hijackers ready to give up their life for their belief. So my, what Rebbe said is like this. He said, there's a very critical difference between Judaism and Islam. What Judaism says is we want you to live in this world, to make this world a better place. The world to come is not physical at all. The world to come, there is no more opportunity for uplifting, for elevating of oneself, right? It is a spiritual world. And therefore, our focus is always on life in this world. And therefore, Judaism will never glorify people who kill. Never, ever. And therefore, it doesn't have a system where, yes, I'm willing to give up my life to kill other people. No, that doesn't make any sense, right? It's actually the exact opposite in Judaism, right? But in other, other institutions where it's only about the physical, right? And then they're saying, hey, you know what? Even our, even our world to come reward is all a physical reward as well, right? So then they say, okay, fine, I'm ready to kill other people. Because it's not coming from a space of I'm willing to do the will of God no matter what. But the will of God is to create in this world. The will of God is to kill, right? It's a completely different mindset. And therefore, you can't compare their willingness to sacrifice themselves to our willingness to sacrifice ourselves, where God says, I don't want you sacrificing yourself for me. I want you to continue in this world. And I want you to be willing to give yourself up, but not to actually give yourself up. So when we dive in the Shemona Esrei, and we start at that first beginning, the first blessing, we say, Hakel HaGadol HaGibar Vahanora. We have to understand with an appreciation and a perspective that is unique to exile Jews. Right? I don't mean diaspora as opposed to Israel, because Israel is also still exiled. We don't have Hashem's presence in Israel yet. We don't have the temple rebuilt yet. Right. So what we mean to say is we need to appreciate that from the perspective 
of where we are today, how much we can actually, some levels, appreciate even more so the power of Hashem. But we have to recognize that it comes from these two ideas, that Hashem's power is that he's willing to forgo punishment in this world to do it in the next world. And the fact that the survival of the Jewish people has kept us going until now will always continue, right? And the very last point I just want to share, I don't know how many of you have seen it, but the line from Natan Sharansky at the Sheva Brachot, Natan Sharansky, the famous refusenik, who then became a Chavar Knesset, right? He was a member of the Knesset in Israel. And he wrote a book called The Case for Democracy that was the impetus for, um, for, uh, for George Bush's uh, you know, fight against the axis of evil after 9-11. So Natan Sharansky was at a Sheva Brachot of a, of a child whose parents actually were both murdered in a terror attack in Israel when he was seven years old. And he was at the Sheva Brachot, which is the, the after party at a wedding where people toast. And he said, you know, he grew up in, in Donetsk in, in Ukraine and he was in jail for many, many years. And he grew up and he said on your identity card, what it would say is, it would say different things about your, um, about which, which country you're from, or which ethnic group you're from, Ukrainian, Kozak, and so on. It didn't really make a difference what it said. The only thing that made a difference was if you were Jewish. Because if you were Jewish, you knew you couldn't get into university. It would be a miracle if you got into university. You knew you would have difficulty getting your, your ration cards. Everything was more difficult if you were Jewish in Ukraine when he was growing up. And people would try to hide their, their Jewish identity. He said, but now we're looking at what's happening in the world today and people are trying to ex- to get out of Ukraine. And they all want to say is, I am Jewish. And they're all trying to figure out, how can I say I'm Jewish? How can I say I'm related to a Jew? Because they know if they say they're a Jew, then Jews all around the world are going to come to save them, right? And that's also something that we need to cherish and something that we need to hold on to. That part of the reason why we've existed throughout the exile is because of our our method or our attribute of having tremendous compassion, right? For all of those who are in need and stepping up to the plate to help them. I think we put those ideas together. Hopefully uh, our Shimon essays will become even more meaningful as we continue on our journey. Thanks to David. Be well. Uh, have a good Shabbos. Next week, we are. I don't think we're going to end up meeting. Uh, yeah, I don't, it's unlikely because I think um, occasionally um, after Purim, I might need a little bit of a break in the morning. So that's all. Okay. Take care, everyone. Be well. Take care. Good Shabbos. Good Shabbos. Bye-bye.